a Podcast One production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Janela Purcell has been championing food as medicine for as long as I can remember. She's written six cookbooks, including Elixir and Eat for the Seasons, and has run holistic retreats and clinics in Bondi and now Byron for almost 20 years. For her, good health is so much more than food. She has some fascinating insights on how we live and how our environment affects us, and of course, so much more. We dive deep on this podcast, so take a listen. Janella Purcell, how are you? Happy to be here, Gaz. You're looking very relaxed and you're in your new place, are you not? Where exactly are you? I was trying to say to Dave, she used to be in Kurabel, which is kind of near Byron, but now you're somewhere else. Well, I am still in Byron, but I've just moved out a little bit because Byron's gone a little bit nuts in the last couple of years and it's just, you know, the population has just boomed. So, I mean, I know I was living on a rural property, but it was getting a little bit busy for me. So I moved only about 10 minutes away, so 10 minutes north. So kind of near Brunswick Heads. Beautiful. We can see this beautiful light in the background and almost hear the birds twittering in the, you know, in the distance. That's right. So tell us about it. What are you setting up there? Uh, people say I'm crazy. You will say I'm crazy probably too. Um, I'm opening an organic restaurant. And You're crazy. I see. Everybody says it, but it's, <laughs> you know, it's been lifetimes in the making and I've been putting it off for a long time. But I, I see a really huge need for it here. I mean, people want to go out and you know, we come here to dine and, you know, eat and drink and stay and have getaways. But there there isn't somewhere that I would like to go and people, I guess, who are similar to me. I want to go somewhere where there's no chemicals in my food. I want to go somewhere with the accommodation. So I'm putting accommodation there too and a yoga pavilion where I'll also do have gigs and talks and workshops and, you know, things like that. Um, but, yeah, I just I wanted somewhere that you could come and stay for the weekend and have lots of drinks and eat pasta and, you know, fall over somewhere close by that's beautiful on a creek or come and do a retreat and do a detox and cleanse and learn how to reset your gut and reset your brain. And, you know, a lot of people are burnt out now. So I guess I'm just building what I would like to go to. So this idea seems like the culmination of many years. You've been in this business for a long time, haven't you? Because you, and I'm not going to drag you all the way back just yet to your little girl, although I'd like to, but you ran a business in Bondi, didn't you? doing much the same thing and kind of spearheading this movement of food is medicine and well-being, right? I think so. I mean, I got I got a lot of funny looks back then about, you know, food is medicine and that food, the food that we ate affected our well-being and, and people just didn't get it and thought I was a bit nuts, which I thought was strange because I was just brought up like that. And, you know, what you ate directly affected how you felt and your skin and your heart and your gut and everything. But a lot of people didn't. So, yeah, I was managing uh, macro in in Sydney, the health food stores there, after I graduated from uh, health science doing naturopathy. That was amazing. I mean, that was, you know, loads of staff and and loads of um, learning about organic vegetables and farmers. And, I mean, that was one of the best experiences of my life. I think that was one of the happiest times of my life as well because I was finally where I wanted to be 
you know, instead of going, oh, God, how am I going to navigate this life being a little bit unusual? And But then I met all these people that were the same as me and and the customers were as well. You know, I learned so much of, of the customers. They just were, you know, had a head full of knowledge. Well, if we rewind the clock to when you started that practice up, you know, what, what were your clients? What did they look like? And what kind of problems were you solving? So that was 2003. It was when I started in TV, actually. It was the same year. So 2004 is when I published my first book and the TV career started and I opened up my practice in the, in the cafe downstairs. It's not that dissimilar. So a lot of uh, the complaints are, they just have different names for them now. So before it was bloating, whereas now it's like, people used to call it IBS, you know, it was a lot of irritable bowel. Um, but now that we get really detailed into that, um, people really stressed out and couldn't sleep. They still can't. They still are. But now it's called adrenal fatigue or adrenal collapse. It's just been rebranded, right? I mean, health's just been rebranded. So it's the same kind of thing. People are going too hard, not eating the right food. But before I was getting people off white bread and margarine, that was hard. Now it's talking to people about it's not just about the food you're eating because people get people are getting food. They get good food, mostly. Now it's more about when you're eating, how you're eating and what sort of food you're eating. And, it, you know, you can have all the green smoothies in the world and chia puddings, but you can still be sick if you're not addressing the other aspects of your life and lifestyle that are making you sick. And many people don't want to do that. They don't want to change their lives. So, you know, it's tough. So if you get back onto the white bread and margarine for a second, you know, um, what? Yeah, because it's important, right? And actually there's still quite a lot of people in the community that love white bread. I'm not sure about margarine, but margarine sells like, you know, hotcakes, right? You know, people still, you know, grab margarine off the shelf instead of something else, instead of butt. Mind you, I like butter, you know that. So what kind of problems was that causing or is causing? Okay, so white bread, I guess where I should go here is that it's not about the actual food, it's how we grow it. It's the industrialization of the food. Mm. So white bread 100 years ago, you know, knock yourself out. But now we add, in Australia, we add folate to our wheat, which a lot of people can't digest and causes a lot of bloating and inflammation and autoimmune disease. And we also add bromine, which is a, a halogen, which is a, a chemical that can displace iodine in our thyroid. So then we get thyroid problems. And it's grown with a lot of Roundup. So, you know, that just, just it's an antibiotic. I mean, glyphosate was first patented as an antibiotic. So that kills our gut flora. And then that messes up our microbiome, which is our gut flora that causes anxiety and spectrum disorders and anxiety and cancers. And we know this, we know this. And it's not about the food. That's why I'm opening an organic restaurant with meat, with chicken, with dairy, with sugar, with everything. It's not, I mean, and I spent my lifetime taking foods out because of my diet, because I thought I couldn't digest these foods. As it happens, I can. It's the d chemicals that I couldn't digest. Right. And a lot of people are the same. So white bread, I mean, I eat white bread now. I mean, that's you're going to laugh at that because I was, you know, spending a lifetime telling people. It's funny because I don't. After knowing you all this time, <laughs> you're telling me not to eat white bread. I don't eat, eat it Eat white bread if it's organic <laughs> and if it's sourdough. Sure. So we don't really want to be eating a whole lot of baker's yeast. I mean, that was invented, what, 100 years ago in a lab that made the bread, bread rise really quickly because we didn't have time to let it naturally ferment. But, you know, the whole business of this, you know, sourdough, it's gotten a little bit out of control and, you know, so here. But it's true that the, sour, the, the natural ferments and getting good bacteria in your gut through fermented foods is the way to go. And our great-great-grandparents did that 
you know, accidentally before we had fridges because things just fermented. So white bread, if it's, especially if it's spelt, but if it's organic, it's just straight up durum wheat, it's much better because we're not, add, they're not allowed to add all those chemicals and bleach to it. I mean, there's so many things added to our wheat that we just don't want. If you can get organic wheat, it's fermented, it's into bread or pasta or noodles, fine. It's fine. And the same with margarine. I mean, margarine is trans fat. It's just trans fat. So we, trans fats have been banned in the States. They were supposed to be out of commercial, commercially produced food by 2019. And then the food industry went to the government, went, you know, we don't actually really want to do that because it's really cheap. So the government went, okay, don't worry about it. Like, I mean, they've done studies on this. And in the UK, trans fats kill because of heart disease, at least 250,000 people a year. It's really serious. Like trans fats are a really serious problem, but it, they're in everything. They stabilise food. Like it extends the shelf life of food. And people just, and it's in deep fried food everywhere. And so people go deep fried food's bad, but deep fried food isn't bad if you use organic safflower oil or peanut oil or sunflower oil, but not nasty trans fats. So it's just about like eating food that nature has provided to us without all the shit that's added to it. That's basically what it is. And and we can go down a rabbit hole when we're going to talk about this. So what I wanted to try and do is because when we were looking through your, you know, your book, you've got eight guiding principles. I don't know if I'm reminding you of something here, but it kind of makes sense. You've got diet and stresses, which are emotional and chemical. You've got things like connection, laugh, exercise, meditation and sleep. How about we work through a few of those and then you can maybe people that are listening go, okay, that's that kind of makes sense. You want to do that? You know, I would absolutely love to do that because that's where I'm at these days. Right. Well, let's do that. So let's talk about diet a little bit. We've talked about some already. What are your guiding principles up and above what we just talked about? Keep it simple and not because every most of my clients, most people, everyone on the street says, I'm so confused. I don't know what to eat. Should I pay, be paleo? Should I be keto? Do I eat grains? What do I do? People are just freaked out. So I think just eat eat food that's whole, that hasn't been refined too much. So, you know, processed into packets and without chemicals. And if you can, the more you can eat without chemicals, the better. And that doesn't mean it has to be all organic. It means chemical free. So go to your farmer's market. So slow, seasonal, local, organic and whole is the an acronym that you should, you know, look towards getting more of that because that's, you know, better for the environment and better for you and what's good for the earth is good for us and vice versa. So chemical free, basically, and eat grains, but not every day. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I like the slow acronym. Tell us it again. Seasonal, local, organic, whole. So talking about that, stresses, emotional and chemical. So I love this and people... I'm really shocked by it. It's there's, it's not just emotional stress. So emotional stress, we understand, is you know getting fired or, or losing a partner or a child or or you can't pay your bills or the phone rings and you're freaking out or traffic. You know things that are immediately upsetting us emotionally, but our body can't tell the difference between the different stresses. So the other stresses are your chemical stress, which is eating chemicals and using shampoo and conditioner and skincare and body products that have got chemicals in them. This causes inflammation in our body, same as emotional stress. And then there's invisible stress, which we get from computers and telephones. And this is, they, you know, people are saying this is the worst one these days because we, we can't see it and we don't see it straight away. We don't feel it straight away, but it's in there causing inflammation. And then um, physical stress. So, you know, stubbing your toe or the way you sit 
when you're on your computer, the way you lie in the bed, the way you stand up when you're talking to somebody. You know, athletes have a lot of physical stress because they override the instinct to stop when they need to because they need to keep going. You know, they need to win that race or get that try. So they have to push their body past where it wants to be going, really. So that's physical stress. So your body is, it all adds up and your body can't tell the difference between one or, or the other. And what we've been doing is focusing a lot on food. We didn't 20 years ago when I was starting this, no one, you know, really thought about it. They just listened to what the government said and the food pyramid, which had grains on the bottom and fat on the top. It's reversed now, right? So people were like grains, 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 and, and drinking tab and having saccharin and eating, you know, sliced whole meal bread for breakfast with margarine and Vegemite on it. I mean, and now we're in the mess that we're in now, but we're, we're wisening up a little bit. So if you can take one of those stresses away, it helps everything. Your whole body will reduce the inflammation in, in your body. So then you can feel better, but you can't, some people try and do all of them at once. I get that. It depends on your personality, but even just taking a little bit of stress out, whether that's the chemicals in your food, you'll start to feel better. If you can take a little bit of stress out from your emotional life, then that's going to help. If you can, you know, use organic hair care or skin care, that's going to help. So it's all the different stresses. Your body can't tell the difference. The same as it can't tell the difference if you're watching Handmaid's Tale or Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something really frightening and upsetting to you and your body goes into a fight or flight response, it doesn't know it's not happening to you. Your body just just knows that it's inflamed and it's it's a bit scared. So it goes into adrenaline release and we're constantly in this 24-7 fight or flight response and that is it's so bad for us on every level. And our body will go into fight or flight um, releasing stress hormones even if it's just chemicals that we're eating. Because your body goes, what the hell is that? And then it has a reaction. But people, we're not, this is, you know, this is as scary and as foreign to people as me talking about eating, not eating sliced bread, you know, white sliced bread and then margarine in the old days. Now people are going, "What what do you mean? Like it's all new and then guilt comes into there as well <laughs> people go into guilt <laughs> so modern te- modern technology i've heard it quite a, it's becoming a bit of a thing isn't it now where people are talking about tech sabbaths i've never heard anything like it where you know instead of a religious sunday where they take time out they're having a tech sunday where they just switch off all the phones and you know turn the telly off and i go wow i don't know if i could survive that long without i don't know checking to see what the weather is rather than looking out the window no, I know it's an addiction, right? And we know it's an addiction. I just had my second, I've been in here a month and I've been without internet for nearly three weeks of that just because I live in an area that doesn't have 3G or 4G and things just don't work as they do, you know, in the cities. And I have to say, I mean, it's like when the electricity goes off and you keep turning the power back on, even though it's off, you know, just because of a habit. I kept going to my phone and going, oh. And it was after about a day, I was like, oh, great. Let's talk about uh, you put connection in one of your eight guiding principles. What does that mean? So, you know, more people live alone in Australia than any other family group and isolation is killing us. Loneliness is killing us faster than obesity or tobacco, they reckon, as well. So it's about connection. Before the modern world, we lived in clans or tribes and we supported each other. We had a connection to each other. We knew where we were. We knew our place in that tribe. Um, And we had elders that we could talk to 
people don't know where they're at now and they're alone and they're fighting loneliness. Like alcoholism is a, is a disease of isolation. I mean, I used to say that before we were all isolated, literally. But now, I mean, it's we know alcohol consumption has gone up 60% during COVID. I mean, the bottle shops around here are going woohoo. But, you know, so are the rehab centres. They're going, wow. Um, it's We're not talking to each other. We're not connecting to each other, especially women. Women really need to connect and share stories. And we know that when they do, it releases oxytocin, which is the cuddle chemical. It's the bonding hormone. It's the hormone that women produce with breastfeeding and childbirth. And it's also the chemical that is produced when we have a natter over the back fence to each other or when we're, you know, having a coffee going and sharing stories intimately. So we're not we're not doing that so much now. And it's interestingly, it doesn't happen with men. They don't produce the same amount of oxytocin. They do a small amount. And they shouldn't because men, when they go into stress, they produce testosterone because that protects the tribe and it you know, they provide security and protection for the women who are bringing up the children. So, you know, interestingly, there hasn't been studies before now with women and stress. So the fight or flight response, that actually happens with men. They produce cortisol and adrenaline. Naturally, women don't. We produce oxytocin when we go into stress. So what we want to do is we tend and befriend other women. So we we tend to each other's children and we befriend other women. You see it here when the fires were on last year and when there are natural disasters or people are stressed, you know, you pick up each other's kids, you make each other food, you, you help, you ring each other and go, what can I do for you? And that's what women do naturally, but we're not doing that so much now. And women are having, you know, we all had babies together before and we brought up the kids and in Indigenous cultures, that's still happening. All the women were auntie. You're not quite sure who your real mum is. They're all auntie. And I mean, it worked though. It worked for a long time because... Now women, I mean, a lot of women, they're educated and they've been out in the world and then they're sitting at home in a, all by themselves with this screaming baby and it's not going so well and they've either had a traumatic birth or a cesarean or they can't breastfeed and they were perfect and great at what they did before. But now they're in at home going, I'm a failure and they don't want to tell other women because of Instagram, probably, because everybody's doing it so well and they're all skinny and perfect. Yeah, having a beautiful oh, life. Oh, yeah, great husband, heaps of money, you know, everything's perfect. So then I'm like, I'm not going to tell anybody that I'm home and I just, you know, I'm not coping. But it's the connection, it brings our stress hormones down. When we talk and we connect to each other, especially women, it, but men as well. I mean, men are suffering as much in a different way. But when we connect with a tribe and a community, it brings your stress hormones right down. You feel safe. And then that has a knock-on effect to all of your chemicals in your body and hormones and your gut, which is our second brain. So connection is a really really important, important thing. And I'm really, and this is another reason I'm building my center because I want people to come and connect and gather. And like in Europe, you know, you'd go to lunch and you'd hang around for ages and talk to people there instead of like not saying hello to anyone when you get there and then shoving food down and then leaving, you know, like there weren't other fellow human beings a meter away from you. It's, I want this connection, this gathering, you know, corroborate the Aboriginals called, you know, a gathering of people. It's just not, it's not cool to be kind anymore. It seems to be kind of people who are just getting more and more me first and isolated and fearful and it's making us sicker. Yeah. And when you say it like that, it seems undeniable that it's crucial in our well-being and our health. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And the more clients I talk to, I mean, every day, I mean, I've been in practice 22 years and I see it more and more that loneliness is is the number one thing. People are just like, they won't actually use that word because there's a lot of shame associated with it. But people are coming home, getting pissed and watching Netflix and then feeling shit in the morning and then eating garbage food and then it just, the whole cycle continues and then they don't have any hope. There's no hope. But when you share, and this was another reason I left actually that area I lived in. I was on a beautiful property. I mean, you know, you've been there with, um, you know, but there was no shop, general store. There was no like gathering spot. Where I've moved now, there's a general store that does the petrol, the, the alcohol, the post office and all the groceries. And I'll tell you what, I told one person on the street that I was <laughs> opening this restaurant, you know, everyone knows. But the first day I was here, there was people were coming with chainsaws and excavators helping me get the removalist truck in. Like, it was just like, what can we do for you? Because there's like three generations here after the war, the Italians and Macedonians came for banana plantations, but they still have that mentality. And I felt it as soon as I drove in to see this property, I was like, yep, there's a community here. And I don't want to be all by myself in the mountains and, you know, writing books and healing other people. I want to have a community and share with other families. Absolutely. You've got laugh, exercise, meditation and sleep. I know I've kind of bundled all those together, but there's a lot of principles to get through. So we've had diet, stresses, emotional and, and chemical. We've had connection, uh, laughter, exercise, meditation, and sleep. I don't know if I'm missing one, but that seems like I've got them. I'm not counting. Um, so laughter, I mean, we know laughter is the best medicine. I've actually got a quote in my book about, you know, especially at mealtime. So laughter will help with digestion and laughter helps us produce our happy hormones. So a lot of people aren't really, I mean, how long since a lot of people had a good gut laugh? Right. I mean, when people do, they go, oh my God, it's been so long since I had a good gut laugh. And it's, Shocking. Like we all are taking everything so seriously because, you know, the world's a mess. Sure. So we're all just, you know, not laughing so much. But laughter is is important for so many and keeps your lungs, you know, you get big deep breaths in your lungs and, and in Chinese medicine we still have grief and sadness in our lungs. So it's often people are <laughs> shallow breathing and we're not doing that deep breath, which also stimulates progesterone, which is a hormone that's rest and digest. So cortisol is about fight or flight. You're running after that prey, you catch it, you eat that little rabbit, or you're the rabbit too. And then rest and digest is when you stop and you've shoved the food, you eat the food and then you're just sitting under a tree and going, yeah, that feels good. So that's progesterone when you're really calm, but we don't, we're not, we don't get that. So laughter is really important. Sleep. I mean, you can't be well if you're not sleeping and you know, I don't, 95% of my clients aren't sleeping. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that. I mean, melatonin, your sleepy hormone can't exist in your body while cortisol is there, which is your stress hormone. So if you think about it, if you're standing on the road and a bus is coming to hit you, your body goes, geez, you better hurry up and get out of the way, otherwise the bus is going to hit you. So that's cortisol, like the Hulk. The Hulk gets, you know, that great big boost of of cortisol so we can lift up a car and save people. But that's supposed to last 10 or 20 minutes. So if you're looking at that bus and it's about to come and hit you, you can't, your body doesn't want to fall asleep. Your body's not going to go, oh, it's nighttime. She needs some melatonin because you'll fall asleep on the road and the bus will hit you. It's the same deal with, you know, I wrote in my book about women breastfeeding. If you're trying to breastfeed or do something nurturing and relaxing, but you're stressed, it's, 
if there's other women around to help you do the tasks, it's a little bit easier to feel relaxed than with you by yourself and you're trying to pay bills and, you know, call people and deal with eight tradies at the same time. You know, you need other people, the community to help you. So, yeah, melon sleep is, you, you know, you need to detox your brain at night. We need to rejuvenate. We need to, you know, detox emotions at night and process things. So if you're not sleeping, I mean, that's number one, really. I mean, I, if you're not sleeping, there's nothing you can do. In terms of health. And, and Dave, poor Dave. Like I did two podcasts last week and the first thing he said to me, Dave's my producer, just in case you don't know, and he said, I'm just not sleeping. And then the first thing he said when I walked in this morning, he goes, I just had a terrible night's sleep. And he goes, I think it's my fault. This is your console. I know. I'm listening to all of this, taking it all on board. But, but you yeah, have was... beer and Hi, pizza Dave. and watch Netflix last night. That's not good. That wasn't last night. Last night was two glasses of wine. But there have been nights where I've had beer and pizza and, and I don't sleep. And then I'm like, why am I not sleeping? But I kind of think I know I think answer. it's deeper. I think there's more going on in your life than you you care to. Uh... You're, you're probably right. Go, Gaz. See this what is I mean? This Gaz. isn't about me, guys. Um, also, Gaz. Lots of people at home feeling exactly the same way. Yeah, but you just shamed your producer. He does it all like, the time. That's yeah, why I'm not sleeping. That's why I'm not sleep. sleeping. <laughs> he can't sleep because he's under pressure. There we he go. knows I'm coming in the morning and I put him under pressure. But well, you know what's interesting? No, no, but, <laughs> but the reason I, I brought Dave in there, because I think it's very typical. He goes, I think it's my fault, you know, because and he's just told you why he thinks it's his fault. And I'm sure lots of people mm. go, well... Well, it's, I don't actually think it is our fault. I think that, that the government, and the, you know, the food industry has a lot to answer for and people who are overweight, there's so much shame with that. And, you know, we are, is it two stone heavier than we were in the 60s? Like, I mean, the, the whole, we can't just be a couple of generations of slothful pigs. Like, we can't be. It's not how, we all just haven't just started eating more. I mean, there is a whole lot of food, more food around, but we would eat less if the food was whole. I mean, and that's what happens. If you eat good food, you eat less. If you're eating empty calories, like white bread and white sugar and, you know, crap, you're not getting nourished from that. So you just keep eating. But the, gov- the food industry knows this. They know that we just can keep coming back for more and more and more and more and eating. And, I mean, there needs to be some regulation on it because there's no education in schools about it. And then we go to blame ourselves and then we go into self-loathing and then the vicious cycle just keeps happening. And then people go, oh, I'm just going to go on a keto diet and lose weight. And then if you drop your carbs that low, it messes up your thyroid, it messes up your... Um, it messes up your whole body, especially for women. And your adrenal glands and then, but sheer force, because we want to be skinny, we'll starve ourselves until we lose that weight. But then you put it back on. And research shows us that you are better to stay the same weight your whole life, whether that's 15 or 20 kilos overweight, then lose 5, 10 kilos, then put it back on again and then lose it and then put it back on again. Hello, Janella. But that's (laughs) what we do. And (laughs) because society has told us that it's worth, I mean, you know, research has shown us that women would rather be ugly, stupid, hit by a bus or dead than be fat. I mean, what? You know, there's two things I was thinking there. There was one I remember, and I'm going to get the term wrong, but the food industry, and maybe people will be shocked by this, but their holy grail is what they call, and I'm going to get the term wrong, but it's like the endless stomach. Sure, somebody out there is going, no, Gaz, it's not called that. But basically the premise is this. If you can eat food and it doesn't make you fat, then you can eat more and more food. So what's happened in the first world, they reckon, is we're pretty much eating as much food as we possibly can because we're getting fatter and fatter, but we can't eat much more. So the market has been effectively capped. You could go to a fast food chain store and order two burgers 
or three burgers and know that you wouldn't get fat, people would do it. Because it's that pleasure. It's that totally. pleasure of eating. That's the holy grail. If they can, you know, that's why they've been working on fats that you can't digest. The problem they've got is that you end up with leaky fat where it just actually just leaks out the other end. They are actually working on this to try and figure it out. And I kind of go, yeah, it appeals. It's, it, evil. it's evil. But it kind of appeals to your gluttony and sense of, you know, entitlement and extravagance and all the rest of it. Well, why are we feeding ourselves like that, though? Why are we pushing everything down? Why that? Yeah. The other thing I was going to say is, and I, I've noticed it only because I've been watching a few old films recently. My daughter, Jenna, loves watching old films. And, you know, if you watch uh, people like Charlton Heston, for example, in the context of a 2020 young man, he is skinny. Like, he's got little thin arms and, you know, like he's still masculine and handsome, but... He doesn't have big shoulders, doesn't have big chest. He can't bench press, you know, 200 kilos. And he certainly doesn't have massive triceps. The idea of man and being handsome and all the rest of it, as much as being skinny for a woman, is the same for a man. I reckon just look at those old pictures, you know, and it's quite interesting how the idea of who we are and what we are and what's powerful and strong and modern and all the rest of it is totally different. So that's called cultural conditioning, right? Or societal norms. And that changes what, what it's trendy. Yeah. And that's, I spend a lot of my time in, in clinic with people discussing that. Like, why are we, why are we like allowing this? Why do we go, okay, so you're supposed to be Twiggy in the 60s and you're supposed to be, have a booty in the 90s like the Kardashians and, you know, have fat injected into your ass so you've got a booty and then that's trendy. And then, but we fall for this and we, we starve ourselves or we eat or we do or we dye things or we bleach things or we wax things because it's trendy because we're all supposed to be exactly the same. There's no diversity. We all look and eat the same food. And before, I mean, we're lucky enough in our generation that we travelled and we went to countries and we were still excited, you know, by there was no McDonald's in Italy or in Greece and you ate amazing food that wasn't. But now it's the same. It's just bland. Every And same with opinions. You can't really have a different opinion. But it's, it's people are really shamed by their bodies and, and they have to look the same instead of really celebrating differences, even in the 70s. I mean, if you watch, like, film clips... The, the Rolling Stones weren't handsome men, right? Like they weren't handsome, but, you know, everyone thought they were sexy. Same with, you know, all, all of the rock bands and all the women, they, Joni Mitchell. I mean, if she came around today, people would be going, are you joking? She needs a nose job or something. But the, we celebrated individuality, but we're not doing that now. And there's shame. And it is all, that's why I've put these different things in here, the different factors about health, because it's not just about eating hemp or kale, you know, it's not. It's about, it's a, it's more holistic than that. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. I don't know that my personality is the right personality for media. I don't think I'm tough ass enough. And I'm not prepared to dye my hair blonde. And I'm not prepared to starve myself to be skinny. 
And I'm not prepared. It's 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 a pretty harsh world, right? I mean, the world of media is pretty harsh. It's not for the to use a sponsored product because without them you can't. Well, you know, when I did Biggest Loser, when you you know, it tends to compromise your beliefs. Well, I wouldn't do it. So on that season, I was doing Biggest Loser. It was the first time they ever had. It was the first season you did uh, MasterChef. So we were both doing Good Chef, Bad Chef, and then I, you know, went to Biggest Loser, and I had Friday night. And teaching the contestants of, it was like a couple of hours, a segment of teaching them how to cook. They'd never, ever been taught about food. It was all, they'd never been taught about food on that show. It was just about exercising your ass off, literally. I mean, and they drank, when I was in there, like mostly they would have a carton of Diet Coke a day each and black coffee. It was I was just so appalled by it because, you know, they weren't well. They were just losing weight and it was all about how they looked. My, I couldn't, I was having nightmares, literally having nightmares at night, feeling responsible that I was on that show. But I was glad that I was teaching them how to eat and how to cook salmon or how to cook fish and how to eat, cook chicken. I used meat and chicken, everything, just to show them how to actually, um, they had no idea, they had no idea. But then, then the sponsors were margarine like I had to use margarine on sandwiches with awful bread and I was I wouldn't I wasn't going to do that and they knew I wasn't going to do that they could have chose somebody else if they wanted someone who had no integrity to go on a show and go yeah I'm going to say that soy's <laughs> really but well it is about integrity though isn't it yeah, absolutely. like you can't say don't eat soy that's genetically modified that's going to mess up your hormones and if you know it's just so nasty for you but then promote a soy milkshake that's for weight loss. Like, that's what TV wanted me to do. And that's why I did end up leaving Good Chef, Bad Chef, because I had to use, they wanted me to use meat and chicken and soy and these products that were genetically modified, which I completely disagree with because I know what they do to you and I've seen it. And so, I mean, it's not really a good fit because I'm not just there to be a star. I wanted to, I wanted to help people that is why I did TV, because I wanted to reach as many people as I could with my message. And I still am, and I have a, a, a following, and, I'm, you know, I still... I, I've always just been a little bit ahead of where the mainstream is, and I like to do that, but that doesn't make for a huge TV personality. You know, and I, I don't feel I don't feel bad about no, it. No, I don't think you should feel mm. bad about it either. And I remember you telling me, because this is quite a long time... This is quite a long time ago that you did... Uh, biggest Loser, and I remember you telling me that you, you were so compromised by it because there you were trying to teach these people that had far bigger problems, honestly, than being massively overweight. They needed guidance and counselling and and nurturing into a better world, and there they were being pushed to exercise however long for a day and then giving minimum amount of calories and not particularly nutritionally sound and certainly not getting any, any advice. I remember you telling me that you were really at odds with the, the hosts at the time. Oh, 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 that was a nightmare. It was, yeah, because they were all about just getting them to lose weight. And, you know, they had the final say. I mean, I've got a degree in health science and I'm a, I'm a nutritionist and I've been cooking for a long time and I know my stuff, but they had the final say about what I could use, they had to check my ingredients and my recipes with how many calories before I was allowed to use it. So right. I wasn't allowed to use egg white, egg yolks. I had to just use egg whites. I'm like, but I'm a whole food. This is 
uh, and I wasn't allowed to use feta or avocado or I had to use an olive oil spray instead of olive oil. And we know now that the majority of our fats should come, our calories should come from fats. It keeps us full for longer, good fats, not, you know, yeah. trans fats. But it was like, why did you hire me if you're not going to listen to me? So, I mean, that, but that was the most, I think I heard it was the most popular segment on Biggest Loser ever. Yeah, and for everyday people, people wanted, because they're like, yeah, yeah how do I how yeah. do I make a nice snack? And I, and I remember you used to, and I still make it. You make those little flatbread, you know, single egg omelette. You know, oh no, I had one this morning. And, yeah, there you go. And, you put lots of greens and crunchy stuff in, bit of miso. And actually, now I think about it, twenty years ago, it was a bit weird. I was like, oh, it's a bit weird. But now it's like really trendy. But see, I love being that person. I love being that person that shocks people, and they go, oh, she's a lunatic, and then they <laughs> catch up. And then they then they do it. You know, I've got this quote that I put on my Insta feed sometimes and it says, first they will laugh and then they will copy. And oh. I, I feel that that's a bit of my life because the people have, it's not about me. And that's the thing. I think that I feel secure enough in myself that I don't need to go, oh, I'm the Whole Foods, you know, I started it, I'm the grandmama of it or whatever. And then because other people have gone and made huge businesses out of this and, you know, the packaging and, and everything. It's wonderful to see these young mums and everybody getting into it. And now I'm on to the next thing, which is about, you know, the whole the holistic part of health. And it's not just food. Yes, you've got food, but let's talk about your lifestyle and your relationships and your chemicals in there as well. I mean, this is a struggle, but people will catch up to this and then we'll get to the next level. Yeah. And it, well, it's starting to make sense. Everything that you're saying, you go, gee, that there's so much that affects us in our environment, not just food. But it does make me smile. I, the reason I brought that up is it does make me smile because it. I remember when I first met you and you were fermenting stuff and pickling stuff and using miso and koji and all these kind of stuff and broths and, you know, not bone broth but, you know, other kinds of broths. But um, all of that stuff and that was such a long time ago now and you go, gee, that was good eating, like really good eating. Oh, I've waited for this day, Gary. Oh, I know. <laughs> All right, let's get a little – can we get a little bit deeper? Because I think the, the problem with all of this is it is very confusing, mm. you know, with digestion and all the rest of that. But you, I picked up some stuff that was, you know, epigenics and, you know, um, mm. what does that mean and how it expresses itself and the environment and behaviour. It's a big subject, right? But do you want to give us a little snapshot? Because this is part of what you believe in. I am so excited. There's a couple of things that I'm really excited by with health, and this is one of them. The other one that it would be good to touch on if we can is how we digest emotions and not just food. Mm. But it is kind of goes hand in hand. So epigenetics was coined by the granddaddy of um, epigenetics called Professor Bruce Lipton. So Bruce Lipton I've met a few times actually and actually spoken with at, um, at conferences. He's just so he's a he's a cell biologist. So he was at Harvard and he was teaching and he said to in the 60s and 70s and he said to you know the dudes at Harvard why are we teaching the central dogma to people? So the central dogma is the name that we give to okay so you've got your dad's got heart disease so you're probably going to get heart disease. Your mum had breast cancer so you're probably going to get breast cancer. So you know if your dad's or auntie's got cholesterol you're probably going to get cholesterol. So you need to be on these drugs and you need to stay on these drugs for the rest of your life. Other Otherwise, you're going to get that disease. Yeah. So this helps the pharmaceutical companies, right? It's like, you know, the bottomless pit of the stomach. Like you just have to keep taking them forever. So this makes us into victims because we have no say over the hand that we've been get dealt. Like just tough luck, you've just got that. But he said to them, 
this has never been proven. Where did this come from? Why, why do we teach people this? It's never been proven. And they went, shh, don't tell anybody that because we're selling a whole lot of pharmaceutical drugs. And so he went, ah. And they said, you have to keep teaching it to medical students and da-da-da, otherwise, see ya. And he was kind of like me, good chef, bad chef. <laughs> so he said, okay, see ya. So he said, see ya. And then he's been for decades researching genes. So what he did was he got the same bacteria and he put the same bacteria in two different petri dishes and exposed these bacteria to different environments. And the bacteria have behaved completely differently. So what, and he's done this for decades and done loads of research with his own time and money. He's the, he's a legend. So he then went, okay, it's not the bacteria, it's the environment. So then we see all these other studies like the Boston twin trials where they got identical twins that were separated and to see their health as they got older, depending on their environment. So basically, if you and I, Gaz, lived in the same house when we were little and we would essentially, and had the same food and the same love and the same upbringing, we would have similar things going on with our body. It, it doesn't matter if we're adopted, it doesn't matter if we're foster children, it doesn't matter. So it's about environment. And we were told also with the central dogma and with Western you know, modern science that our genes never change, that our genes, what we get, tough luck, that's it, why bother? We now know that our genes are changing every 20 minutes or so. They're expressing differently according to our environment, which makes sense, right? So we change and adapt according to our environment. So if we're in a stressful situation, our genes are changing according to that and we're evolving to that. So if we're happy, so he's one of his first, his first, I think it was his first book that just blew my mind. I remember I was flying back from Good Chef, Bad Chef one day and it was, it's called The Biology of Belief. And it's about what you believe is your body will change according to what you believe. So it's about if people think they're going to get cancer and they, I'm not going to get cancer, I'm just not going to, I'm going to eat a vegan diet and organic just so I don't get cancer. There's, you know, your body's just thinking about cancer all the time. So that's what, you know, often we can create in ourselves, so to speak, for example. So epigenetics is, it means above your genes. So we can totally change our health according to our environment. Gee, that's a big subject. Uh, it's huge, right? It's a massive it's, subject. But it makes you responsible for your own health. And people, you know what, we're so spoiled by Western medicine by taking, having a Band-Aid for everything, that people are like, oh, what do you mean I have to stop, you know, or reduce doing that? I mean, they're, if they're pissed off that they have to actually take responsibility for their health because they're so used to taking pills. Yeah. The younger generations are getting it. But it, it's huge. It's wide-reaching. And he goes in to talk about, you know, this all starts a lot of our bacteria in our gut, in our body, comes from the last trimester of pregnancy. So if our mum's stressed in trauma or happy in bliss, that is passed down into us. And then in the delivery of the child, that is passed on from the mother and the first seven years. He talks a lot about the first seven years being the tape recorder. So we're recording everything for the first seven years. Doesn't matter if they're your biological parents or not. And then for the rest of our lives, we're pushing play on that recorder. So we're doing the same things, unless we can be really conscious of knowing that we own our lives, we are the masters of our fate, and we can decide what we do with it, not give our power away to, oh, well, I'm going to get breast cancer because my mother did. Oh, well. Like, you know, it's a huge shift, yeah. Have you ever been in a, in a situation yourself where you felt compromised by, by your belief in, say, traditional and alternative, alternative's probably the wrong 
term, isn't it? But complementary, maybe complementary medicines yeah. rather than a natural medicine, for example, food, etc. And your eight guiding principles versus, say, being in a situation where you have to go the route of modern medicine and take drugs and pills and have you been in that situation? Because I would have thought there are events in your life, for example, you know, my dad's got uh, cancer and, you know, he's been exposed now to you know, two lots of chemo and radiotherapy. He's about to go into his third lot of chemo. I mean, we don't know. He doesn't know. Nobody seems to know whether or not this is a good thing or a bad thing. He's got terminal cancer. There's nothing he can do. But for him, that extends his life. But his life so far you know, under chemo, has just been so compromised. But he, he feels like he doesn't have a choice. And I, I get it. I would probably feel the same. Have you ever been in a situation where you go, I have to chuck all my ideas of natural medicine, et cetera, out of the window because now I have to do this? No way. No way. Because it goes so much deeper as well. I'm actually researching my next book now on transgenerational trauma. And the studies that have been being done on that, and they're doing studies on people who were in concentration camps and how that's affecting up there up to three generations now that they can prove the way you will digest and absorb and assimilate food is going to be different to somebody else's. So it's not just us. This is ancestral. You know, I did have a cancer scare at the beginning of this year and they made a mistake and I thought I had breast cancer and thyroid cancer for a month. I actually haven't even told my family this, but anyway, so here I am. And I was went into that space and went, okay, here I am now. I've been dealing with people with cancer for decades and now I am here. And there was absolutely no way that I would go down chemo or radiation because what gave me that? What, what was, they made a mistake, so it was... But it was, you know, it was helpful for that to happen to me because I was into, okay, why why did I get this? Why is this happening to me? And I looked at all the parts of my life that I wasn't being honest with myself or I wasn't following the part that I should because I was looking after other people or whatever. Or I wasn't expressing myself the way I should be. So it went deeper and deeper and you have to go. I mean, I get patients regularly with four-stage cancer that, that Western medicine says, go, go, be free, we can do nothing more with you. And they live five, 10, 20 years because we shift some really fundamental, I mean, if a disease has got full hold of a body, I mean, this is a really big and contentious subject, but if it's got a hold of somebody and they choose not to fight it, and it's sometimes, mostly, often, it's easier not to fight it and to let go than to change. But no, I just, I don't want to slash and burn is what we call chemo and radiation in, in my circles. I don't want to just cut it out. I want to know why, what's it coming from, where did, you know, where it could be ancestral, it could be chemical, it could be environment. What is it that's causing this? And if you can get it early enough and change ways, you see it all the time. I mean, there's so many shows on this now, like Heal the Documentary is, you know, huge. People are watching that and really shifting their minds on it. So no, and you know what? I, I was diagnosed with endometriosis when I was, you know, 13 at my first menstrual cycle. I mean, that's just insane to, for that to happen. And so that's also why I'm looking into the red thread is has it's been called for centuries, which is passing down from mother to daughter of different emotional things and how and how it manifests and how it plays out. I'm I'm just so hugely interested in that because you can do all the right things in inverted commas and still be sick if you're not if you're submitting to cultural conditioning. 
And that's what a lot of us do when we're not happy about it. And we push things down and you're not meant to be, you know, a woman's not to be the, meant to be that and a man's not meant to be that. And this is causing a lot of problems in us and it makes us really sick. So, you know, I did go down Western medicine with endometriosis. I had probably eight laparoscopies and, you know, I'm still dealing with the scar tissue from those operations and I, it didn't fix the endo. It just made doctors rich and gave me a lot of scar tissue and didn't and, and actually... what fixed it? Tell us what fixed it. What fixed it was me, it's an oestrogen dominance basically is is what endometriosis is and most of us are oestrogen dominant. So oestrogen comes from chemicals in our food. It's it's in cosmetics. It's also, you know, it's about accepting that you're a woman in a man's world is a lot of, is what I had to do. And I'm a strong woman, you know that. And I really, you know, want to go out and, and save the world and help people and I'm of service to people. But it's people take that the wrong way. So I felt misunderstood, I guess. And so I, I mean, the, a lot of the work I've done in therapy with kinesiology on this, because it muscle tests, so we found out the cause of it. Apparently, you know, I looked at women when I was about 12 or 13 and went, if that's what it means to be a woman and a mother, I don't really want to borrow that. And a lot of women have done that. We've denied our femininity and we've, we've be, become more masculine in our ways of, of working out there in the world instead of using our femininity and our strengths as women. But they haven't been allowed, really. They haven't been praised. They've been, you know, women's story has been edited and like edited is being really kind. It's just been not even there. History, it's his story. It's not her story. It's his story. So a lot of the work I'm doing with women now is about, you know, embracing what women have got to offer. And I think as I did, I did cure my endometriosis and it was through accepting that I was different and accepting that I didn't have to just get married when I was 20 and have a whole lot of kids and submit to a man who knew better than I did. Because, you know, I'm from a Lebanese family. My mother's Lebanese. The women in my mother's family are bright, strong, gorgeous, amazing, nurturing people. I mean, that was all about the women. It was just all about, but then we were meant to serve and, and clean up and submit and pretend we weren't smart. I mean, this doesn't make for good health. It's not honest. It's not an authentic life. And it's not being the captain of your ship. So I held a lot of anger and resentment in my gut and in my reproductive organs. And I see it in women day after day after day now. And you can spot it a mile away. And it's, I mean, there's not many women that are free from it actually. But then, as we mentioned earlier, there's, it's gone the other way in many cases. You know, it's, um, you know, you've got women that are under pressure trying to do everything, have a career, you know, then miss out on children, etc. So all sorts of modern problems. It's a mess. I mean, when I was a young girl, I was, I would have been found in the kitchen cooking, in the garden or at my sewing machine or hand stitching something <laughs> because I'm really feminine and I know that I've got a lot of oestrogen and, well, I did. And it was, you know, that's what I naturally love to do. But people are like, oh, you're smart, you should do medicine, you should do law, you should do that. And I'm like, what? Would you, what? Like it was the most foreign thing for me and for me to actually drive through and run my own race and do what I wanted to do instead of doing law or medicine was, oh my God, it was like death. It was like excommunication from society and the family that I didn't, I wasn't, all my friends where I grew up were getting married and, you know, doing whatever they were meant to do. But I was just like, that just seems like a nightmare to me. But I think if we can, 
I mean, of course women are going to. I mean, we're pissed off. We haven't, we were We were sitting at home and it was boring, you know. It's boring. It's, so. It is everybody, yeah. And so we, and we weren't connecting with other women doing the boring. So that wouldn't have been so boring. That would have been fun if we were picking up clothes together. But we weren't. We were supposed to be having fun and watching, you know, days of our lives. And it was like, these are my options and no thanks. So we went out to the workforce and, you know, whatever made the most money and gave us the most independence and got us, you know, out of the shackles of the kitchen was what we wanted to do. But um, I've written about this in the book with the oxytocin part about the, the cuddle chemical with women that, you know, we do have it all now. In my generation of women you know, born in the 60s and, and probably the 50s as well, we're the first ones that do have it all. We're allowed to educate ourselves. We're allowed to have a, we've got a bank account. We can own property. We can travel. We can have sex with whoever we want before we get married. We can get divorced without too much shame. We can, we can do all these things we weren't allowed to do before. But there's a, people keep emailing me about this and putting it on my Insta feed. They love it. Not only do we have to bring home the bacon now, because women are, you know, there's two incomes. We have to make sure it's free range and we have to make sure it's chemical free and we have to make sure that it's in BPA free packaging and we have to make sure that it's recyclable and we have to do it in heels without breaking a sweat after we come home from work. Seems reasonable it's just to me, like, I don't know. It's too... Yeah, see, and that's what the problem is. <laughs> anyway, we've been on this for quite some time and I wanted to kind of wrap it up because there's loads of information there. Um, but you, you started a, um, a retreat last year, didn't you, in Byron? Did you get it off the ground? Because it would have been caught almost in the, the start of lockdown and COVID. Tell us a little bit about that and what the idea is because what it, it was with women in the Hinterland Fest, Yeah. One, Gary, I didn't even know that you knew about that. That's well, nice. no, because you asked whether my daughter would like to fly up oh, and help you right. out, and she was really, she was really keen. You know, talk about empowering a young woman. She was like, "Well, yeah, that's I'm doing what that. the offer was actually. That it wasn't what more to help me out, but just to get her involved because I had yeah. the earlier we can get young women and, and empower them, so to speak, but to you know get them to understand the different stages of a woman's life. So. To answer your question, yes, it's called Women in the Hinterland with Fest. And I was going to do it at the Malambimbi Showgrounds over three days, which can hold a couple of thousand or 3,000 people at a time. So I was going to do a three-day um, camping event with um, people from overseas, all different artists and speakers, and it was all very exciting, but couldn't. So then I went, you know what, I'm just going to do it anyway, but I'm going to do it a, a smaller one. So it would have been like $20 or something, the other one, if you were a day visitor. So this was more expensive and we did it in the hinterlands of Byron. I had 20 women and it was it was life-changing for those women and it was wonderful. So I will keep doing it. So it's really about teaching women about the four different stages of our life. So get from maiden, maiden is, you know, when you're a teenager and then to mother stage and mother doesn't need to mean birthing children. It can mean birthing anything. So, mm. you know, birthing your career. And then we have an, uh, and the last stage is crone and, you know, Western world has turned crone into an ugly old witch with a wart on her nose, but wart, crone actually literally means wise old woman. So, and in other cultures, you know, menopause, the word for menopause is means double spring. It means the beginning of a new life, freer from familial obligations. Whereas in our youth and beauty culture, where people go, oh, no one's looking at me anymore and I feel like an old hag and this is the best time. So there's a, the third stage is maga, which is the period between not having children anymore and crone. So menopause to crone. 
And it's this, I'm in this stage and I have to say it's the best time of my life because you, your oestrogen goes down and when oestrogen, which is your people-pleasing hormone, you don't give a shit anymore. Like, you, yeah, you see it in women my age, which is why men my age go out with 20-year-olds. Before, because well, we go, nah, nah, and you don't wear eight-inch heels anymore and you're not serving everyone constantly and you kind of go, make your own lunch, nah. I'm not wearing that push-up bra. Yeah, not doing that either. And I'm going home early. So it's more about being okay with that because society doesn't like it and the families don't like it because they're used to you being a certain way. But it's about when the women are together and we know that we're like listening to the women just going, I do that. Oh, my God, do you do that too? And wow, it was validation and confirmation. And if women can be together more and learn about our different stages and the rites of passage that goes from one to the other, instead of just it all just merging into one. And also um, our cycles, our moon cycles, our menstrual cycles and our different moods in each one of those, instead of just pretending it's not happening and charging on and having all these fertility and reproductive issues, knowing to respect yourself at different times. Women are so into it. Like it's huge. It's really, really exciting stuff. Gee, there's so much information. I just can't, you know, my head's doing that funny thing, you know, it's just like, can't cram it all in. But you know what, (laughs) if um, I think if, people who've loved this podcast, then they can go to your website, which is just janellapurcell.com. I think, you know what, a lot of what you've said in this podcast makes a lot of sense to people. And I think there's so much going on in our lives and it's not just a, you know, a one direction fixes everything. There's obviously, it's very complex. Yet so simple. Yeah. It is. If we get back to basics. I think, yeah, exactly. Yes. You've got to embrace it. I think that's what it is. And, you know, I think the time is right. I think people are getting more kind of despondent and confused, you know, about what their lives mean and where they're going. I mean, I think too, you know, I think you get to a certain age. It's funny how you were talking about that period in a woman's life. I think, you know, we're grumpy old men. I turned into a grumpy old man. It's that I it's just... It's called andropause. You know, it's called andropause. what it is? I just got ah, stuff yeah. it. I'm just going to tell you what I think. You know? I know, isn't it great? It's quite nice. And apparently <laughs> yeah. when you get to a certain age, it's not only telling what you think, but you don't, you make no apologies for anything. And that's really grumpy, old man. I'm looking forward I to that. I don't know. Stage. I think it's called wisdom. Are you always like that, guys? Yeah. I was thinking more about, you know, you could walk out the front door with no pants on and people go, ah, oh, he's old. Don't worry about no, it. No, that's called dementia. <laughs> well, I won't know it anyway. So, And if I'm doing all the right things, hopefully I can stave off a little bit of that. Janella Purcell, fascinating chat. Really glad we got you on. And uh, it's no way we can cover all this information in just one podcast. But as I say, if people want more information, they know where to go. And uh, down here in Victoria, we can travel now. So I'm looking forward to coming up to just outside Byron and seeing you soon. I'll make you your favourite falafel. It's been an honour being on your show. Thank you, Gary. And now for my tips and tricks. And during that chat, we talked about Janella's one egg wrap. You might have caught it, you might not have. So... Here's Janella's recipe, give or take, because I've developed it over the years. But I remember when we first met, she talked about the fact that, you know, you have an omelette, you have a four-egg omelette with cheese. She goes, it's ridiculous. If you want a snack, you just need to less protein, more crunchy, fresh stuff. And I've been making this thing for years now. So I take one of those flatbreads, you know, the mountain breads, they can be rye or corn or wheat, it doesn't matter, nice and thin, spread some good miso over the top of that, and then make a one-egg omelette. That's right. You're thinking, one egg? That's not enough, but it is. So you just whisk it up, a little bit of seasoning, put a dash of soy, some fish sauce if you fancy, and you make a really thin, almost like Japanese-style omelette. Tip that onto the flatbread, 
and then fill it with lots of crunchy stuff. So I put things like coriander, almost like a salad, so it's over the top. Might put a few chilies, put a cucumber, some radish. Now you're getting the idea. Wrap it all up and then take your time eating that. Can I tell you? It's delicious. It's delicious because there's enough egg. It's delicious because that miso is lots of umami flavors, really meaty, almost vegemite and delicious because it's crunchy and fresh and it'll set you up for the day. Give it a go. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Darcy Thompson.